as far as MF Global goes, um, you know, talk about adrenaline and fear and terror. Uh, that Monday was was truly awful. My belief is, uh, I say this to people and I mumble it to myself, is that whatever it is you're doing is probably going to be a lot harder than you thought and take longer. So whatever, <laughs> it's wonderful to be optimistic, but be ready for you know, it to just be a lot tougher. And by the way, that hopefully will make it fun. Being prepared for when things don't work out as planned is very important. But planning for failure is not planning to fail. Fate has ordained the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These are the words from a speech that President Nixon had prepared in case of a failure when the US launched Apollo 11 to the moon back in 1969. But President Nixon did not have to use this speech. Instead, he used the other speech he had prepared, namely the one to be used in case of a successful moon landing and return. Having a plan B and being prepared for the unexpected. Well, that's what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest with or invest like one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world, delivered to you via a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Today you're listening to episode 51. If this is the first episode you've heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. But before we go any further, let's find out who's on today's show. Hi, my name's Rob Hartman. I'm president of Pacific Capital Advisors, and you are listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing that, Rob. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the toptradersunplugged.com website where you will find lots of details about today's guest. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Rob, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Rob, I think it's fair to say that you form part of a unique group of so-called emerging managers. And what I mean by unique is the fact that although you measured by AUM is perhaps emerging, your firm has in fact been around for more than 10 years, which most people wouldn't consider emerging at all. And uh, I, uh, I guess that you probably started your trading journey even prior to forming Pacific Capital Advisors. So I look forward to hearing your story uh, to date and uh, to dig into the trading strategies you run. But 
before we do that, I have a, a simple question that I try to ask all of my guests in order to uh, appreciate the many different answers uh, you get to this question. And it goes something like this. If you meet people for the first time, say in a social uh, function, who don't really know you and don't really know sort of our industry, if they were to ask you what you do, how do you respond? How do you explain what you do? Well, the uh, the cocktail conversation is, um, you know, I build trading products that can help people reduce risk and add diversification to what they already have in their portfolios. And then I pause and then they ask more questions and we take it from there. Right. Absolutely. It's very simple. <laughs> and then there's plenty of questions. Of course. Now, but anyway, let's stay with you for, uh, for a while longer. Um, tell me your story, how you got into this business in the first place. And maybe in order to put some, some color on it, you know, tell me what you were like as, as a kid or a young man uh, growing up. <laughs> Well, I get well. I actually was born in California, but uh, I took a circuitous route back east, and um, mostly grew up in upstate New York and Pennsylvania. And uh, you know, sort of the the usual childhood in the uh, '60s and '70s. Uh, no video games. A lot of playing outdoors, skiing, various sports in school, and. Um, I guess just very typical. I have three brothers. Mm -hmm. You know, bless my mother for uh, dealing with all of that. We're all very active and, and um, we enjoyed our, our childhood. But uh, I guess, uh, you know, my interest uh, primarily was music and sports. Mm -hmm. um, my mother was very musical and uh, I spent a lot of time with my, you know, laying on my back in front of the phonograph listening to uh records and uh, I played a little bit of piano when I was young and then in my teen years I got into uh, playing the bass guitar which I just I still do <laughs> I love it I love sure. music and uh, so those were those were sort of my focal points um, school you know I was I was an okay student um, the things that I was really interested in I you know I was fanatical about for some reason I thought I wanted to be a weatherman <laughs> You know, it's you know who reads ahead in their textbook. Well, you know, I read my earth science book, and I just I just loved it. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, you know, my English grades were, you know, maybe not so good. So, if I could really get into something, um, I dig in, really enjoy it, and uh, pursue it to the nth degree. Um, and then, uh, you know, as I as I went through high school, um, you know, music was certainly um, a love of mine, and sure. uh, I tried to get involved with some bands and, uh, you know, rock and roll, as they say. <laughs> and it was it was a lot of fun. And at one point, I thought, well, you know, I can do this for a living. I I can do this. <laughs> you know, it's the classic <laughs> stars in the eyes, you know. Sure. But, um, you know, and how exciting is that um, as a kid? So, uh, but the reality of it was um, that I concluded um, geez, shortly after high school, you know, I was taking some community college classes and playing in a couple of bands is that um, I really didn't like um, starving. You know, I just wasn't really making any money doing it. And so you sort of have to 
cut to the chase and say, you know, am I gonna, am I gonna pack my bags and um, move to New York City and or you know or wherever, sure. you know, but get out of it. And at this point, I was in um, uh, living in East, a place called Easton, Pennsylvania, Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton. It's kind of you know, kind of a Rust Belt town. Um, right. Call it, you know. It, it's college town, but primarily, you know, just old industry and so forth. So, um, it didn't appear that, uh, you know, lacking, lacking virtuosity in my instrument and not liking being poor, I figured I better figure, uh, another way. <laughs> so, um, uh, a friend of mine one day came, came by the house and he told me he was headed off to, to this, uh, electronic school. And, uh, so I took a look at where he was going and the and the curriculum and so forth. And uh, to me, it just made perfect sense because I always liked fiddling. You know, I worked on cars. You know, I did carpentry. I worked on houses. I, you know, loved all that sort of stuff. And uh, the electronics industry, this is in uh, 19, 1980. Sure. You know, it's, wow, how exciting is that? And, um, and, and it was quite affordable. So um, I walked down to my local branch. And got myself a student loan, and um, I believe that that was for five thousand dollars, and the entire tuition was going to be six thousand right. dollars. And it took, and it took, right. <laughs> when do you hear that anymore? Um, and the whole, you know, the whole program was going to take about twenty months. And um, you know, and the, it was just, it was just incredible. The pitch was so simple. They said, you know, your attendance counts you have to have high attendance you have to get these kind of grades but if you sort of hop these hurdles we have a lot of people in the industry you know IBM and other big names come in and recruit from us and I thought wow that's that's just the ticket so I proceeded to uh uh, take music and move it into the background which turned out to be wonderful fun because um you know sort of relegated to being a hobbyist right um so I, I, I actually got in a relatively successful band with a bunch of older fellows that were what's <laughs> older fellows. You know, these guys were 26. Well, I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these these old guys. But I was impressed because, you know, one guy was working for uh, GE Finance. Another guy was a, a VP at a bank. Isn't everybody a VP at a bank? Yeah, but um, – and another guy was a school teacher, you know, and so uh, so it was a beautiful thing. We'd I'd go to school, they work, um, we go off and uh, do our individual things, and then get together, rehearse, and then we did a lot of um, played out a lot in um, north of Philadelphia, uh, all around New Jersey. Um, the drinking age was 18 at the time, so there were a lot of really big rock and roll halls that you could go play at. So had a wonderful time doing that, but. So, the, you know, the bottom line is, is, you know, who needs to sleep? Let's play rock and roll. Let's go to school. And um, as I sort of popped out the other side of that, I, uh, I, I did get very good grades and I did get invited to some good interviews in industry. And uh, I got hired by IBM in mm-hmm. 1983. And um, so I, at that point, I moved to uh, upstate New York. After waving goodbye to my, you know, my bandmates, <laughs> now that I had a real job, sure, and um, and that was really the beginning of, uh, you know, uh, a seventeen-year um, information technology career, um, and so, you know, another uh, thing that you really don't hear about very much anymore is um, 
one of the reasons I went with IBM and not a couple of the other offers that I had is because IBM had a reputation of doing a lot of training. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I wanted. I wanted to learn like crazy. I was, you know, the prototypical guy that when someone said jump, I said, how high? Sure. You know, I just, I wanted in. So at IBM, it was, it was wonderful. I started in, in, in the hardware area and final systems test and, you know, essentially from tech school going from, you know, monkeying around with early, early uh, microprocessors and, uh, you know, we, I got my FCC license. I worked on transmitters and all this other stuff. And they sit you down at IBM and, you know, it was like boot camp. They said, you know, look, your moms aren't here to help you anymore. And everything that you learned that you think you know, forget it. We're going to, we're retraining you. You know, we all, I remember us all looking at each other like, what? <laughs> and, but they did, you know, I mean, you know, the most significant bits on the, on the registers and the processors were reversed and, you know, we're just, so you spend a few days with your mind being blown and then, and then you just sort of, uh, you know, step into it and get trained up in, um, quote unquote, the IBM way. So off we go to, uh, um, work on these gigantic machines. We were working on, uh, the mainframes in, uh, uh, Kingston, New York, and, um, you know, I, the size, the physical size and the amount of power that they took um, could power a town these days. And um, they were just fascinating, though, because they were, they were giant. They were complicated. You know, just to find your way around them, there were these, you know, racks of technical manuals that you had to, you know, maneuver through. And, you know, so we show up on, uh, onto the scene as, uh, you know, me and these other guys as young pups and uh, proceeded to learn from some, you know, really seasoned, very bright guys that had been there for years. So it was, it was again, it was a, a wonderful experience. And uh, then the next opportunity crops up, and that was um, to go to the education department at IBM. And when <laughs> when my... My friend, I specifically remember getting a cup of coffee in the break room and I say, hey, Roger, what are you up to? And he says, hey, there's these openings over in education. Why don't we, uh, let's go over and check it out. That'd be great. And I thought, wow, those are the guys that taught us. And immediately I kind of got this, you know, nervousness in my stomach. Oh, no, really stand in front of all these engineers and techs and stuff. Oh, they're just going to rip us apart. Yeah. And then I realized, you know, when I get that signal, that means I got to do it. So, mm-hmm. so we went off and went to the education department and, um, and I taught the internals of some, you know, some of these big machines for, did that for about a year. And then, um, again, another opportunity came up to get into, um, software development and they recruited from within and they took pretty much anybody who was interested and gave them aptitude tests and, um, so I went and did that, passed the test, did some interviews, and got invited to, you know, essentially go through a whole new series of uh, boot camps in two phases to become, you know, a developer, um, you know, in the software factory as sure. it was at the time um, at IBM. So uh, that was um, that was a lot of fun. I learned how to program in the IBM way. <laughs> <laughs> which was the, the only way it's, I mean, you know, ask me if I can flow chart and do pseudocode and work as a team. And, you know, yes, I can, you sure. know. Um, so 
So I then uh, proceeded to be uh, deployed in uh, in their operating system development. Uh, maybe some of your listeners that are old enough might know what MVS is. It's their mainframe OS. And I worked in that area for, you know, one release, as it was, um, plus did some other interesting side projects. And, um, again, just a, a wonderful experience. You know, I show up as a pup, right? I, I mean, who's, I'm a hardware guy who's been working in education, and I've just been boot camped into software engineering. And uh, I show up saying, what do I do? Where do I go? How high do you need me to jump? And, uh, Again, there's just some brilliant guys, you know, I guess they call them IBM fellows. And these guys are really old now. They're, they're in their 40s, right? <laughs> they're, <laughs> and they're just wonderful, uh, wonderful teachers. I remember running into any number of problems, and I, and I actually look forward to getting stumped because I would sort of roll into one of their offices and describe the problem. And these, these guys would just light up and then proceed to, you know, go all over the whiteboard and tell me four or five different ways to, to attack the problem. And it was, you know, I was drinking from a fire hose from these really brilliant guys. So how does that all wrap up? Well, I guess my nature is, uh, you know, we went through, <laughs> we went through, you know, one release, you know, and, uh, of, of, uh, of the software and, you know, you sort of, wipe your hands of that and you go, okay, well, that was great. That was, that was fun. Now what do we do? And they kind of looked at me and said, well, we do all that again. Mm. And I, and I started to get that feeling that, you know, maybe, maybe there was something, I, I just didn't want to go through that again. There had sure. to be a better way to integrate. You know, I just felt like I had all these skills. I had the hardware, the presentation, um, you know, the software, uh, there had to be a, you know, probably a, a better use of uh, what I thought were these accumulated skills. Oh, and another thing to add, to add in there is that in this in this process, um, in about 1985, I, um, I I sailed as a kid. I sailed boats and I skied. I think I mentioned, sure. but sort of the perfect unison, um, or, 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 or you know, the joining of those turned out to be windsurfing. Um, and I started doing that in 1985, and uh, I really. I really obsessed over that. It was tremendous fun. So anyway, so imagine me, um, and I still remember sort of staring outside with my tie cinched up tight, right. a cup of coffee in my hand, looking out at the snow, <laughs> <laughs> saying, I wish I was, I can't go skiing, but I really wish I could go windsurfing. Sure. And <laughs> so, so that, <clears throat> so now, you know, born in California and San Jose, did all that back east, and now I turned my eyes to come back west here because as it turns out um you know i, I discovered that probably the best place to have a uh, technology-based career and um be able to sort of have a, a sports lifestyle was was out here in the bay area sure. um, or at least one of the best places so so i proceeded to um look at opportunities out here um got a job with uh a company that's that's now gone. Uh, it's Amdahl Corporation. I think they're, they're absorbed by um, Mitsubishi, or uh, I don't I don't know. Too old. Don't sure. remember. Sure. But uh, then I wound up being at um, Sun Microsystems, which has now been bought by Oracle. Um, I put in five years there. So, the, the, so the, the transition was, I think the the, the key transition here is that I went from, you know, doing either hardware or presentations in education or 
programming, I got, I found a place where I could kind of do all of it. And I wound up working in, um, data centers, um, where you, you know, you, you had to know, you had to have a mind for the big complex systems. You, you know, you needed to be willing to see how complicated things interacted. Um, and it was, I just loved it. Um, because I felt like there wasn't anything that I couldn't figure out and fix if I just had enough time and I could dig into, you know, my background and break out, uh, maybe some dusty tools and, and get to work. So, so that really started at Sun Microsystems. I put in a bunch of years there, five years there. And then, um, I guess the other important point is, um, IT, you're, you know, you're on the expense side of the ledger. Um, you know, you're not, uh, you know, unless you're, you know, there are certainly companies that uh, generate revenue with this sort of stuff. But generally, back in the old days, you know, IT was an expense, and with the business roller coaster, if uh, when things went into a trough and they looked at places to cut or outsource or what have you, um, IT usually came up on the block to some degree. So, in the valley, things continued to. Um, evolve and go up and down. And, and I found that I got outsourced, you know, much of what was happening was not necessarily of my choosing. I was uh, either part of a company that got bought by another company and you know what happens then, then they figure out how to merge departments and sure, so on and sure. so forth. And so there was just sort of, uh, uh, it, it became sort of chaotic. And I, and I realized that, uh, you know, really, I, I needed to get a grip on basically setting my own direction. So um, after having worked with some really wonderful people, very good uh, managers and executives in the IT industry, I found I had a wonderful network here in the Valley. So um, I proceeded to decide to go ahead and consult because I was getting calls from them. And, uh, you know, rather than becoming a, a full-time regular employee, you know, and, and see, you know, letting the chips fall where they may and then, you know, getting either laid off or outsourced and what have you. Why don't I just go ahead and be a consultant, leverage my network, and then have these guys invite me in to, to work on, um, you know, a variety of projects and, um, you know, various messy problems, which are, you know, a lot of fun. So, so at what stage did your sort of curiosity for trading uh, come in in this uh, part of your career? Well, that's that's really when it happened. As I as I um, it got to be uh, the late '90s, I was consulting, and uh, my wife and I were both working. And uh, <laughs> the 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 fateful question popped into my head. I don't know. I don't remember what I was reading or where I was, but it's what's what's this? What do you mean? If I trade, I can do better than just sort of sitting on my stock holdings and you know some little real estate and so forth how how can that be and and um that curiosity then led me to you know discover um and of course this is you know 98 you know 98 things were really heating up 99 is when um you know I sort of asked myself that question what is what is trading all about and that's um that's when I really kind of dug in you know I you know, there were articles everywhere. It was the dot-com boom. You know, this place was just going crazy out here in the Bay Area. And uh, uh, so I, I proceeded to, you know, d dig in from, from 1999 on, just sort of with that initial question of 
how can this be? How can you do better than just... Sure. Were there any, 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 any one particular person that you kind of discovered and thought, you know, I, I want to find out what, you know, what he is doing, what's making him successful? Or, or how did you get sort of the first sort of a source of uh, information that, you know, relating to trading? Well, back then, I mean, all you had to do was look at your inbox. And if you ever sent an email to somebody about trading, um, you immediately started getting emailed by everybody who had a great idea on how you ought to put your money at risk. Um, (laughs) So uh, I think there was a friend of mine that was working for another guy that was doing a trading newsletter you know and you sort of have one had one guy with uh, sort of a fundamentals methodology and another guy with a technical methodology and and they all chatted it up in this um you know emailed newsletter mm-hmm. and um being curious I, I i said well you know this is this this seminar that one of the guys was putting on looked a little little expensive but Geez, you know, there were, as usual, there were the testimonials of, you know, how it worked and uh, what you would learn and so forth. So I said, I'll give it a try. And uh, in attending that um, that seminar, the first one, um, you know, obediently, uh, you'll laugh at this, uh, you know, I learned how to do swing charts with pencil and graph paper and, uh, you know, sort of, and, and the idea was that it was uh, this GAN-based um swing chart trading and um you know there was theoretically there was a reasonable stable set of rules that would allow you to go through the trading process systematically um the reality as i found out was that um it was mostly that way um except for when i wasn't making money and then he'd tell me that i forgot about something (laughs) uh so that's kind of how I got started with, uh, you know, go off to a seminar, kind of check it out. And then I started asking questions and that's when things, the wheels really came off from listening to other people as I, you know, the, the guy would say something like, uh, well, if this happens and that happens and you do this, it's a 60% chance you're going to have a winning trade. And I raised my hand, well, where'd you, how do you get 60%? You know, and then, then they got this funny look in their eye and they're hoping I'd leave the room. And I just kept asking questions like that. And I realized, oh my gosh, these guys, they're winging it, right. you know. And in the process, the, I guess the, 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 the real pivotal bit was, is I said, well, why can't you just test this stuff, you know? And that's when I found out about Trade Station. And then I just completely abandoned really listening to... Um, any of these other guys and said, well, I know how to, I, I can do some programming. So I just need some data in this platform. And like many of the other, you know, little campaigns I've done in, in, in sports and otherwise, it's just a matter of time and effort. And uh, I should be able to figure this out. That's sure. how it started. And um, how long did you keep working both sort of a testing and 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 uh, your systems or ideas and 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 consulting to to the to the big uh, IT companies in 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 the valley or in, another, or in another way <laughs> when did you decide to go full in well so <laughs> wonderful question because there was a you know sort of a tipping point um the other bit of background is is that I was I got into windsurf racing at a very 
on a very competitive basis, uh, starting all the way back in '85. So, out here while I was doing the consulting, uh, or you know, doing the IT job, and you know, culminating in, in the consulting gigs, and then, um, but I was also you know, training like crazy and and doing all this windsurf racing in the Bay Area, and occasionally traveling, and. If that's not enough, then, you know, I'm married and and by 1999, let's see, I had had my second daughter and, um, you know, so now, you know, if you sort of do a little bit of arithmetic on that, we're now getting back to um, when do you sleep, Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, so in the fall of 2000, I was consulting at Apple and uh, training like crazy. and spending really all of my spare time that I could stay awake testing strategies. So, you know, the, f- the fateful evening was, uh, which my wife remembers vis- uh, <laughs> vividly. Sure. She taps me on the shoulder and it's, I don't know, it's maybe 12.30 or 1 in the morning. And she says, you know, it's it, the, the simplest question, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Mm. <laughs> And um, so we had the, the heart-to-heart talk of, you know, how do we manage all of this? How do we, you know, something's got to give. And so <clears throat> I always, I wanted to have my own business. You know, consulting was one thing, but uh, I really wanted to have my own business. I also wanted, I also had this belief that I didn't want to be tethered to just the Bay Area here because I was consulting in high tech. And so when, you know, when you sort of took the parameters and you line things up, you say, well, if the future is that I can generate some income with our existing assets trading and that can give us, you know, location independence, uh, financial independence and so forth, that goes into the potentially good for the future column. And then I looked at, you know, my consulting at Apple and so forth. And I said, well, you know, I can go back and get another one of those jobs, I suppose, anytime. Um, I need to just take a break so that I can really sort of run to ground what can be done with this trading stuff. So, um, <laughs> as my wife will say now, you know, you you took that break from consulting, and I thought it was just going to be a break. <laughs> as it turns out, you know, it, it it turned out to be the career move. So, sure. um, so that was so that was when I stopped trying to do everything all at once. And, uh, I did continue to, you know, competitively windsurf race. Um, but I really filled nearly all my other time, um, obviously other than family and obligations like that with, you know, with my brain and my hands and my eyes, um, sort of buried into, um, trying to understand, you know, what strategies worked and didn't work and how to move the whole thing forward. And uh, on that note, when did you sort of finalize the first version of your trading strategy enough to to kind of say, right, this is it. I'm I'm gonna now follow whatever output I get from these uh, from these strategies. Yeah, I um, the the simple answer is about three years later in the in the uh, summer of 2003. I felt like I had settled into sort of a medium-term trend following, sure. but the the way there, um, you know, so why that, right? Um, yeah, my my strategy when I when I, f- you know, first went fully into trying to understand this stuff is I really sh- I did a kind of a shotgun approach. I did a variety of things. I 
I started, I developed um, intraday trading strategies on stocks. I started looking at um, futures trading with stock index futures on a swing trading basis. Mm-hmm. I went and uh, read as many books as I could, purchased um, futures trading systems mm-hmm. that were, were uh, open sourced so that I could see what was making them tick. So, so <clears throat> you know, so my approach to getting to that 2003 decision was is that I, I really went very wide with my exploration and I had varying degrees of success. Um, you know, uh, I committed to, you know, for example, six months of trading a stock portfolio, um, swing trading it, um, and, uh, it was profitable, but because of the vagaries of trading stocks and the various shocks and slippage and it was just, it was just, it was very messy. I probably only made about half of what I theoretically thought I should have. So, you know, that was one lesson. And then I had another swing trading thing with futures and it made just a gigantic amount of money. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting, but that can't hold up. And sure enough, it didn't, it, you know, kind of turned over on me. And so I, I learned all these lessons, but the one thing that really made sense in my testing and what I looked at it was that, you know, diversification, you know, the, the trend following, um, you know, approach, seemed to be reasonably profitable, seemed, um, you know, I could just sort of rationalize it um, mm. pretty well um, on a go-forward basis. So I try, you know, we traded the family accounts on that. And um, that's, that's, that was sort of my decision point, just go with that style of trading. So 2004, you 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 set up um, PCA, and that really starts out then with with a trend following strategy. If I if I understand you correctly, yeah, that's 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 correct. Sure. Before we sort of get into the the actual trading strategies, because I think that probably um, sort of my next question probably more is about you know, the business and, and the business goals that you um, have, as I understand them, um, and also the fact that you don't really see yourself competing with the big CTAs, uh, at least not on their terms. So tell me a little bit about, you know, when you started the business, were these goals um, things that you knew from the beginning or is that something that's evolved? And, and, and what do you mean by by, by the goals you've set yourself? Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, the things that you said are true. I, I, you know, I really don't want to compete with, uh, and, and I evolved to these, is that I really don't want to compete with uh, the biggest managers out there. And um, I want to offer a different type of solution for investors. And um, the way there was an evolution. Um, you know, I did the... <clears throat> Let's uh, let's get into the sort of the decision framework here. Is uh, so into 2004. You know, I say, all right, I'm going to do medium-term trend following. Why? Well, I, you know, I I had traded intraday. I knew how to do that. Um, I had choices. I had other you know a variety of ways I could trade. So when I looked at the um, the risks associated with the first product that I put out there. I saw medium-term trend following as being, you know, profitable. That's number one. Um, explainable, right? It's, uh, you know, it's not, um, 
It's not new ground. Sure. Um, and so sort of that, that reduced the risk that I was going to be introduced. You know, it's one thing to be the new guy, but to be the new guy who's, um, you know, professing to be able to trade in some new and innovative way, sure, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could do something like that. But I just saw that it being, uh, you know, going the, um, the trend-following route to be probably the most prudent. So as I proceeded through um, my early trend-following days, uh, I made some money when other people didn't. I attracted, well, obviously I had friends and family money in initially. Then introducing brokers began to, you know, introduce more money. And <clears throat> within, you know, a fairly short period of time, I guess I would say, let's just say I got lucky and I had... I think I had about eight million dollars under management, which you know was I was wonderful. Sure. I felt uh, sure. I felt wonderful about that, and I was making. I had, you know this is the classic. Um, I had made plenty of money for my early investors, and then for the folks that um, the folks that got on the uh, on the program a little bit later on, you know, cue the uh, cue the the drawdown music, right? Sure. The the trend following drawdown um, ensued, and um, you know then then the realization. Okay, so this is you know a key bit is then I realized okay if if I'm going to go into a fifteen or twenty percent drawdown and I only have about an eighteen month track record at this point, I've essentially established that I have the same vulnerabilities in, in my style of trading that the big guys do. Mm-hmm. It's just so. Why would you invest with Hartman sure. as a one-man shop when you can put your money somewhere else with significantly less business risk? And it, you know, so I sort of mapped that out, and I thought, wow, this the the forecast now that I'm in this drawdown might not be so good. So mm. you were gonna, you, were you gonna? Well, something? I was just gonna just I was just curious. What kind of trend following did you start out with? Um, because trend following is you know different things to different people um, and since you have sort of gone uh, away from that pure style at least nowadays maybe maybe you can share what what you were doing initially without giving too much of the secret sauce away uh, I had uh, you know there's I, I will I'll tell you there's nothing there's only so many ways you can make money in the markets right I mean it's sure. it's not too tough um, I had uh, a couple of different uh, Break breakout look back periods. Um, I don't remember specifically what they were, yeah. um, but you know it wound up that the average holding was only about thirty days, yeah. and you know um, I guess what was one what was one of the tricks? I had this belief, uh, and I and I still believe it. It's look if you get a position on you know you stuck your neck out, don't necess- you know give it some time. To work, and so I, you know, I really had some interesting ways. I thought that I invoked my trailing stops to mm. uh, to exit, and so it was a long, short, and flat. Sure. You know, there was it wasn't a reversal. Um, I was trying to you know mitigate exposure and balance that with um, you know the rest of the P and L. Um, so, uh, you know, it was I, I can't say that it was particularly. Um, magical. Uh, I certainly learned that you know you could you could probably make money in the long run with trend following with a variety of settings. The question is, um, can you can you manage your client base and stay in business as you work through the drawdowns? And, sure. Um, 
So around that time, 2005, 2006, when you were, uh, I don't really have uh, the data in front of me, but sure. but clearly you were heading into, uh, and I do remember the 2004, 2005 was a difficult time for trend followers in general. Um, so so that period really was the, the uh, ignition for you to start thinking, how can I be different? Yes. Well, I, what it was is it was the answer... Um, it was the answer to um, it was the answer to the initial question when I figured out in 2003 which way I was going to go. Right. You can take door number one and you can try and be different, or you can take door number two. And and uh, I, I believe that I was getting admonished by the marketplace that perhaps I should have made a different choice. Sure. Um, so so it, that's really what what sent me down that route. And and the other thing that made me switch away, and and everybody does this. At least I hope everybody does. You know, you go into a drawdown, and you know you're trend following, and you're supposed to stick. You're you're supposed to be sticking with exactly um, what your uh, setup was theoretically yeah. when you started. But everybody's doing R and D. You're constantly hammering away, mm-hmm. and. I, I think of mechanical trading and systematic trading as just a wonderful way to do as much worrying as you can as soon as possible, mm-hmm. you know. So I had been, you know, switching, you know, as I went into the drawdown, I'm, I'm you know, rolling parameters around, mm-hmm. trying different things, filtering things and changing the um, – you know, sort of the, hypothetically, um, with plenty of hindsight, right, changing my portfolio. Sure. And, sure. and I sort of came up with this, you know, this conclusion that, you know, there's really no way, the only way that I would have really escaped something like this would have to just been lucky, yeah. you know, just have a different market, have a slightly bigger position in one place. And, you know, to me, I just, that's, that was another major conclusion. I thought, wow, I just, I just feel like I'm, you know, I've, I've got to um, get more skill involved with this and maybe take out what, you know, if I would have, if I would have survived in, you know, through that drawdown, the, the, the fact remained in my mind, I was just lucky, mm-hmm. you know? So that, the, everything we've talked about plus that really made me uh, I guess we're segueing into the next phase, which is, you know, I said, wow, well, what is it that I know how to do? What is it that's truly unique? What is it that has some, you know, as I call it, marquee value that, um, you know, would, uh, you know, get get me back on the ground, investors in the door, and uh, sort of mush this whole business uh, down the way. And that was when I uh, so I, you know, I, while I was still trading the trend following stuff, I, I went back into my, you know, bag of tricks, you know, back into the tool bag, and and um, began to work on uh, the intraday uh, program that um, and uh, the the techniques that then became uh, the Vanguard program, which still trades now. Sure, I want you to talk me through that period if you if you wouldn't mind but i want you to stop around 2010 2011 and 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 i'll explain why but but you obviously have a an expansion phase uh, in this in this period after launching uh, vanguard um, not to go into the program itself we're going to do that a little bit later but is there anything in particular through that period you you want to to highlight sort of the 2007 2010 period where i imagine vanguard is the only program you're trading at this stage that's correct i guess you know um 
you know, perhaps, I was doing, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, perhaps share what people liked about the changes you did. It's, you know, there's a certain amount of heartbreak associated with ending a program, you know, so my diverse one and diverse two programs, you know, telling the brokers and people that were still involved with it, it's like, hey, you know, I've, I've you know, I, I need to make a major change and um, here's what I've got going. Here's the way I'm trading it with my money and, and this is the way forward. Um, and so... You know, you so we sort of make that you know uh, uh, leap that chasm from from one program to the other, and not, obviously not everybody comes along. But I had sure. my core group of folks that, um, you know, bless their hearts. They just they say, look, whatever it is you're going to do, we want to be involved. I mean, that's wonderful stuff. So they jump on board, and you know, I was even trading in the beginning. Um, I was I was trading uh, the DAX, the Dow. NASDAQ, S&P, of course, and, uh, and I traded uh, mini crude for a while as well. And all of those things proceeded quite well. Um, uh, then the changes began, you know, the markets really began to change, I guess, in 07 and 08. Um, you know, the stock indices worked just fine through that period. Um, oil had that blow off top of $147 or whatever. And, and, uh, sort of the, uh, the, um, let's call it the symmetry and the beauty of the way it had behaved just seemed to disappear in a very short period of time. It got thin. And so I, you know, shut that part of it down. Um, and then, um, yeah, let's see. So what, what are really the interesting bits is, you know, I had, Good returns through, uh, absolutely, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, you know, seven, oh eight, and then some interesting observations in early oh nine. So there's, you know, with the huge ups and downs and so forth, there was there's things noticeably changed in the spring of two thousand nine. I remember in in March, you know, you know, you spend so much time just watching the charts real time and managing the operation and stuff, and you could just really see that the, the volume was changing, the patterns had altered. And, um, you know, and then my, my, you know, I'm getting pushed and pulled into various positions and I thought this, this looks a little strange, you know, we're basically okay, but this is, this kind of doesn't make sense. So one of the major discoveries was, you know, so I, I actually shut down some of the, uh, subsystems because they just looked like they were getting beaten up terribly. So, so I, I narrowed down my exposure and then, uh, I believe it was uh, there was the stress tests in May of 2009, and it was it was it was really amazing because I could just sort of watch TV out of one eye, <laughs> and then watch the charts and see um, somebody leaked the the uh, the results early, and it was like switches being flipped. Everything kind of went back to the way it was. All the you know participants came back, the patterns came back. You know, and it was just amazing. And, you know, a day later, I'm going, this is, it's like we're right back on track. And so, you know, I kind of flip all my switches back on. And literally for, you know, four or five months, it was back to normal. And then it's, you know, and so, so that's when we started to, you know, interesting things started happening. And then in the fall, late summer and early fall, it sort of all went dead again. And the volatility went out. And it just became very tricky through, through the last part of 2009. Uh, 2010... 2010 was uh, first QE, right? 
and you know the strategies you know all switches on things are working basically okay i don't have much money under management at the time but the track record looks good things are kind of proceeding as i expect and um then we get into this qe phase and the market starts to do what we see quite a bit of now which is these i call it you know a featureless melt up you know and um so all of the normal price discovery that you know we had seen for many years where you, know, you can sell tops and buy bottoms and maybe do a little momentum trade here and there and so forth suddenly the most dangerous thing you could do is ever sell a, a high and um and so I was just watching this melt up and I turned off you know I turned off my short signals and I just you know I I let the longs get in and I just never went short and um so there was a nice run up that I had in the beginning of uh, 2010 and I got a call from one of my biggest investors and he's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm just not getting short like everybody else is, you know, there's, there's the way it used to work. And, and, you know, I just, I can't be dogmatic about some signal. You know, uh, it's, it's like sending my kid off the curb in front of a bus. I mean, look at this, it's a melt up. Just don't do it. You know? And so, you know, I sort of, blew the whistle on myself in terms of, you know, overriding some of my own signals. But um, so, so that's sort of how I shifted uh, in, in those days from being, you know, in, incredibly dogmatic about taking every, every possible signal and, you know, adhering to it 100%. But then, you know, the bottom line is, is this stuff, uh, there are simple techniques and it's just the market. And my job is to unite capital through my techniques with these markets. And hopefully we have positive P&L. And you know, these are these are my calls, and um, and uh, so that that sort of awakened me to some things, and um, uh, so th- those were sort of the major shifts sure. into uh, I think the time frame that you wanted sure. me to pause at. <laughs> but you see good growth though, because I, as far as I uh, understand, you actually sort of by 2011. I mean, you're managing substantially more than eight million dollars, uh, if I'm correct. Yeah, no, you, you're correct. I mean, I sort of ramped up from a couple of million dollars at the end of 2009. And, and I think there's probably some magical, for lack of a better term, uh, magical triggers. You know, I started to cross that three-year boundary for the for uh, track record. And um, and then, uh, like I had mentioned, I I, I began to make money, as, as my investors told me, nobody else was making that kind of money in, in the current situation. And so, all of a sudden, you know, I'm I'm everybody's new best friend, um, and you know, I ramped up very, very quickly. Uh, you know, ten, twenty, thirty million, and um, up to forty-five million by the end of 2010. Because I want to. Uh, venture into uh, sharing a quote with you and then I'll explain what I'm trying to uh, to to get at because I think this is something that we can all um, or we should all think about and, and the quote goes something like this fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace now you may know where this quote comes from but it actually comes from a speech that was never published because when the U.S. sent up the Apollo 11 back in 1969 to the moon, President Nixon had actually prepared two speeches. Mm-hmm. One 
for a successful moon landing and return, and one in the event of a failed mission. And the quote that I just, you know, uh, started out with is obviously the quote from the failed mission speech. Um, maybe I should just uh, mention something uh, funny that someone told me um, to the younger generation of, uh, of our listeners, and that is the fact that the smartphones, and you might know this as well, I mean, the smartphones we carry today in our pockets probably have more computing power than the computer on board the Apollo 11 that took the men all the way up to the moon. But that's just yeah, no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> interesting absolutely. that I came across. But, but here's, here's the thinking. Um, you know, being prepared for when things don't work out as you plan is is very important. Um, but it you know for but planning for failure is not planning to fail. That's right. So um, you know we all know that it's difficult, uh, and maybe some people would actually say that this is what CTAs do all the time because we have our systematic rules and if uh, a trade doesn't work out uh, exactly as we hope we know what plan b is and we just uh, follow our rules but in your case you you have a a, a business that's really going through uh, a a great growth phase uh, from 2007 when you launch up until the fall of 2010 as you mentioned but then suddenly something happens, which is probably quite unexpected and certainly was unexpected to, uh, to, to many people. Um, and in your case, MF Global happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. Were you prepared? Did you have a plan B in your armory uh, for, for, for this event? And, and maybe you can speak a little bit um, to, to that, because I think it's such an important lesson for all of us uh, to deal with the unexpected wow <laughs> first while you were quoting that I could feel my adrenaline go up with the space the moon mission I mean that's a myth. that's incredible and then um, as far as MF Global goes um how do you survive that? I mean, first, you know, you, your heart has to go out to all the people that lost their jobs because of that. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. You know, I know people who, you know, aren't in the business now or, you know, it's, it's true trauma, real trauma. And, um, you know, talk about adrenaline and fear and terror. Uh, that Monday was, was truly awful. Um, but let me back up. Sure. Uh, you, you, you brought up a really important point. Um, my belief is, uh, I say this to people and I mumble it to myself, is that it's going to be a lot harder than you th- Whatever it is you're doing is probably going to be a lot harder than you thought and take longer. Mm. So whatever, <laughs> it's wonderful to be optimistic, but be ready for you know, it to just be a lot tougher. And by the way, that hopefully will make it fun. Um, I wound up, you know, I really worked hard to make sure that whatever business I built, I kept the, um, you know, being an IT guy, I'm really into outsourcing things and, you know, having agreements with trusted partners and so forth. And it gives you the ability to scale up. I mean, I scaled up radically, right. Uh, with when I had the 45 million under management. So I, I had, leveraged, you know, technology and good people and for not too much money, 
um, really rapidly scaled my business up. And of course, my experience says you you may be passing people on the way back down if things don't go right. So the beauty of the setup is that I could scale things down very quickly too. Um, so, <clears throat> so the challenge is uh, I really kind of had flat returns going into the MF Global D-Day. And um, unfortunately, I had 95, 90, 95% of my clients cleared at MF Global. And of course, this isn't where I directed them. Yeah. This is where my, my clients were. A lot of the IBs were affiliated with it. So, you know, it's just this, this, this giant source of uh, um, through a variety of, of people. It was the primary clearing firm. So sure. um, that that Monday when everything went to you know, zero as it were. I mean, there was, there were whispers, there was talk of what was about to happen. You know, certainly I was set up for trades that Monday, but you know, I've had this happen before where I go into a weekend and I go, there's some things just aren't right. And you know, I'm going to, I think I'm going to hold off on my trades. And this is one of the beauties of being intraday is we had no positions going into, into Monday. So essentially I just kind of had one eye on the TV and I saw some strange messages and I said, well, something's gone wrong. And sure enough, there goes, you know, essentially there, there goes the business, right? So MF global happens and uh, essentially overnight I'm, I'm out of business because I was actually doing execution through them as well. Right. So, so that, um, that was very traumatic, and I had uh, uh, all of my clearing was done over there. So, you know, what's the lesson with that? Right. You know, a couple lessons. The cheapest isn't always the best. Sure. And, and <laughs> no matter how easy it is for you to do it, divide up, you know, your, your assets across multiple clearing firms. Sure. Um, how's that for a wonderful hindsight bit? <laughs> yeah. um, so... So the rest of this plays out, um, you know, we go into December and there's, you know, it's just, it's, it's horrible for so many people. Um, we start to hear that, you know, maybe we're going to get 25, 30% of our money back into uh, another brokerage um, through a bulk transfer. So there's these sort of incremental bits of hope that appear. And sure enough, we begin to start get, getting some money back. But now the challenge for me is, is I, you know, we need people to get their money back and I need to get trade back to trading for people. So even after that trauma, I'm still faced with the, you know, the, the problems I had before MF Global happened, which is I had flat returns. I was getting some redemptions. So the way I describe it to people now is, uh, you know, I was sort of going door to door with my investors. Of course, it's by phone call and so forth. And, uh, you essentially have these people that have been really burned by MF Global and they feel burned by the entire industry. And you're essentially crouching down trying to talk them to come out from under their bed saying, managed futures is wonderful. Things will work out. I think we're still friends and you need diversification. So if this made sense before, you know, we, we need to get going. And only a small subset of folks really kind of, um, well, let's put it this way. If I had fabulous returns, you know, maybe people would come out, dust themselves off and get going. But for flat returns, you know, it was very slow going. So, uh, that's, that's the MF global implosion part of the story. But essentially you pick yourself up and you, 
uh, over the next three, four years, you launch a couple of new programs. So mm-hmm. just give me a quick overview of the programs you run today. Just a very quick one before we jump to the next uh, topic. Sure. Um, well, Vanguard, uh, you know, uh, what I did is I made a shift with Vanguard uh, away from it being intraday only uh, and, and stock indices. I, I uh, you know, with the, the flat returns being what they were um, and ongoing research, uh, basically I started looking up time frame and I saw, um, you know, as compared to the intraday time frame, I saw, you know, relatively stable opportunities uh, in a multi-day holding period. So after much hand-wringing and consternation and so forth, uh, again, to, you know, reuse that analogy as I sort of gathered myself up, talked to my clients, and then made the leap across the chasm to go from, you know, because uh, that really is where the marquee value was, was the intraday trading with uh, Vanguard. But I went ahead and made the transition to a multi-day holding period. And then I also added some interest rates uh, uh, actually, ten-year note and uh, long bond, thirty-year. Sure. So the ten, so the ten and the thirty. So I've, I've sort of, I came up with a method where I've, I'm trading uh, some S and P's only um, from the stock, uh, from the indices standpoint, and then uh, the ten and the thirty. And the contribution to P and L is generally over the long term about half and half, half from the stock sure. indices, and and so so it's sort of turned into a more a, a, a multi-day holding period. Um, financial program, U.S. financial program, if we were to really simplify it. Um, And then to accommodate people who are, you know, still really interested in, uh, you know, some of the some of the other stock indices, I came up with something called the Agilis program. And it trades uh, the Russell 2000 mini, uh, the NASDAQ and the Dow on the interest rates, or I'm sorry, on the uh, stock index side. And then I, I, again, I paired it with uh, the 30-year and the 10-year. It is a little more lopsided on this one where it's a little more the P&L is from the, from the stock indexes. But uh, the idea there, <clears throat> so if you were to sort of contrast those two cousins, the, the idea with, the, with, the, um, with Vanguard was to create huge capacity. And I mean, with the S&P, S&P E-mini, and then the, those two, uh, the 10 and the 30, you know, I can trade probably four or 500 million without really twiddling around. Sure. So, sure. so it's a beautiful thing in terms of uh, its capacity. And then Agilis, on the other hand, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's not the Clydesdale that, uh, that Vanguard is. It's, uh, you know, it's like being at the dog track. You've got these much faster moving, more volatile, uh, probably, you know, generally more momentum based um, return streams that come from 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 that one. So that's sort of the two financial programs. And um, in keeping with, uh, I guess, you know, what, what we you mentioned briefly and, you know, I guess we would say going forward is that my my belief is that I need to have multiple. I never wanted to be in a situation where I, I just was a. A, a one horse shop, you know, I needed to have multiple products and they needed to be fundamentally different. So clearly I had really, um, drawn a nice circle around the financial U S financial markets with, uh, with the Vanguard in particular and Gillis as well, and Gillis as well. So I went for, you know, for lack of a better term, anti-financials and the most, you know, sort of, uh, diversifying markets I could think of were the, uh, the ag markets, ags and softs. Sure. So that was the, uh, that's how I got into, uh, 
building the Terra program, which is um, grains, meats, and uh, you know I trade sugar in there right now, which you know is uh, grows out of the ground, but it's a soft. So, so diversification. Um, people can build portfolios with the products I've got, or they can go ahead and you know add it to an existing portfolio where they feel like uh, they need a little little more exposure or the return stream that I offer with my products. Sure, great. Now let's jump to sort of more the the, the nitty gritty of things. And uh, the next topic I normally talk about is a little bit about the organization. Now you know I know you already alluded to, and and uh, and, and and that is obviously still the case that you run your firm on your own, but being from the IT sector and, and, and so on and so forth, um, you know, I have a feeling that you might still rely on, on uh, you know, not just systems, but also outsourcing, uh, you know, where these things make sense. Um, but my question is actually a slightly different one. And that is, um, even though you and I and, 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 and many people do know that, um, you know, in a, you, in a systematic world, you can do a lot without having uh, a big team. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you try and 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 bridge the gap of what uh, many investors' uh, requirements are in terms of uh, organizational infrastructure and the way you've organized yourself? How do you? What does that conversation sound like when you when you're having that? Well. Um... In the current environment, um, I start by expressing the simplicity in my operation as it is. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm not doing. Um, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not actually placing orders from my laptop here in in the office or something. Um, you know, intraday. Um, when I was doing that, you really had to have eyes on and all the networks, you know, just, you know, point to point, you had to, had to have everything operating 100% all sure. the time uh, with, you know, my attendance or, um, you know, back in the day, let's say I had a group of trusted folks at a desk who really understood everything that I was doing. They had my code at their shop and um, they had eyes on if anything went went sideways, uh, I'd get a call and I, I could intervene. So, Anyway, in the current environment, um, you know, I, I basically just submit orders once per day. So, um, uh, what's the single point of failure? Well, clearly, it's me, right? I mean, I I'm, sure. I have to be around currently to to put those orders together. It would be a simple matter, I suppose, at this point to um, get uh, the team that I use over at R.J. O'Brien to, um, you know, run my. Um, you know, run my processes and uh, grab those orders and uh, put them in place. You know, all all in one stop. But I'm not I'm not ready to do that at this point. So, how do I get people to move forward? Well, there's certainly a large number of people who just say, "Look, it's a no go. You're a one you're a one man shop." Um, but for those people who understand what it is I'm doing, I can rationalize the risk that you know if if I just went off the radar for. Uh, for a day or two, you know, I have rules in place where uh, my wife or uh, or the guys at the at the desk they know where all my clients' accounts are and they can flatten all the positions and sure. until I until I show up in uh, you know wherever Saskatchewan. Um, so there are going to be people who 
here, here's the thing is that this needs to be organic. I, I remember back in the early days going to an MFA conference and, you know, again, I'm sort of like a puppy dog. Just, all right, who, who do I talk to? How do I raise money? And I'm just go, 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 go. And let's just figure this whole thing out. And yeah. these guys kind of just said, look, you know, you've got to have an office and you better, you know, and they sort of described you and you have to have somebody answering the phones and this and that. And, and, um, Boy, I looked at the expense of that, and then I kind of looked at what needed to be done, and I thought, why would people, why would someone want me as a beginning manager without a lot of assets to be increasing the burn rate for my business by doing something like that? And I mean, I was, I was indignant. Um, so, you know, as we said, I, I tried to make the adjustments to outsource. Uh, like I said, I've got a wonderful desk uh, with these guys who who uh, do operations for me, and they they ask to be treated like they're my employees. And I mean, I love that. Sure. Said, but oh, really? When you say operations, I mean, uh, are you talking about you know client accounting, clearings, making sure everything reconciles, settles? Uh, no, that, that, uh, well, what I just mentioned there sure. is just order order management, right, right, okay. and and execution. Um, but on with with uh, you know all the back office stuff, I have another firm that I work with, uh, the guys over at Hedge Facts, and I've been with them since I don't know two thousand six, I guess, and um, and so that gets well handled as well. So sure. what it does is it resolves it down to. I get to actually behave as someone who's running a business and uh, let's just say a CEO where I know that my opera, I really don't have to do a lot of operational intervention at all. I just need to get those orders out. Um, And then, you know, sure. I'm the person who, who has to send out the invoices and and all that sort of stuff. But those, to me, that that's really just a matter of staying organized. Um, Not so hard. The really tough stuff is figuring out how to make money for people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, but it's certainly—I mean, it's certainly a, an issue that I would say probably ninety percent of of, uh, of of the thousands of CTAs we uh, we we see uh, registered. I mean, uh, you know, they will be struggling as well to keep up the uh, the so-called institutional infrastructure that uh, that some investors clearly require. Um, but uh, you know, nowadays, uh, I certainly think that there is a case for. Uh, working smart and uh, as you sell, as you've done, align yourself with good people and uh, good outsourced uh, solutions. So uh, I think that makes sense. And and it seems to me that if um, I mean if I, I if if I read you correctly, uh, it seems to me that uh, you know you want to um, put the numbers uh, out, keep plucking away, and uh, and 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 have a very um, you know, uh, organic uh, growth from here. If if I'm reading you correctly, no, you you're 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 right on the money. And I mean, if we're delivering a message to people, it's like, look, again, this is a campaign, and if you want to be in this business for a long time, take that long view. Now, first, the guys who have all who need to have all the boxes checked, the institutional guys, you're just that you really kind of. I hate to break it to you, you just—they're not. You're not going to be able to check all those boxes, but there is a huge number of people out there who still appreciate what it is we do, and they understand the risks associated with it, and they won't bet huge with you, but they'll get involved, and so through that, you know, partnership of uh, them 
being good clients and you know you you know really being focused every day to make money for them and and do all the right stuff you're going to generate revenue and then you can begin to incrementally and as you say organically grow your business and then the remainder of those boxes that need to be checked you will be able to get them checked in due course if you take care let me <clears throat> this is sort of a, a, a spur of the moment so let, let me try if i can formulate this uh, correctly so it makes sense so i have two young kids and i guess in particular my my daughter amelie she had a phase a few years ago where she loved hannah montana <laughs> so <laughs> we often had to sit down and watch her you know her movie in which there is a song called the climb And what the song is all about is really that we all strive to get to a top of something or the end of a quest, uh, but that the real joy and satisfaction we get should not come from reaching that top, but it should come from the... Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.